Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everyone, it's Pacific. And welcome to the penultimate episode of Out of Place. If you like the show and you like what we do, there's a few ways you can support the cast and crew. The first is by going to Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. That is the best way to help get our show into the ears of new listeners. And if you really, really like the show, you can head to midnightdisease.net slash join, where for only $5 a month, you can get early and ad-free access to new episodes of Out of Place, The Hotel, The Theater of Tomorrow, and Margaret's Garden. All of this and much more at midnightdisease.net slash join. But without further ado, this week's episode. I had got to the Carruthers Institute late. It wasn't my fault for once, there was flooding on the tube line. Miss Arundel gave me a smile when I walked in and said I'd better tread softly, the old man was on the warpath. I don't think Professor Burtwistle has ever done anything more warlike than a particularly aggressive harumph, but I thanked her for her concern. She said if there was ever anything bothering me, I could always talk to her. It rather came out of nowhere, and it was rather awkward. There seemed to be genuine concern in her. I thanked her and said everything was fine, it was just a problem on the tube, and headed down to the basement. Does she know something about the artefacts I get sent by the project? It hadn't occurred to me she'd have any idea. Perhaps Burtwistle mentioned something to her, or she saw one of the weird things among the back shelves in the archives and was worried I was getting into something shady. It was oddly touching. It was after lunch when the newest package arrived. I'd been sorting through boxes of medieval nails. 
Presumably, they're the key to information that's important to someone, but I can't imagine what it is or who wants it. After logging God knows how many of them into the computer, I headed down the road to grab a sandwich. Chicken and pesto. Highlight of my day. There was a package on my desk again. The size of a shoebox wrapped in brown paper. I stared at it for a couple of minutes. Was seeing what was inside better or worse than another few hundred medieval nails? It didn't matter, I was going to open it anyway, of course I was. This time, the small white card read, For the attention of the consulting archivist. That was a new one. Professor Burtwistle has never consulted me about anything. Still, nice to get a promotion of sorts. It was signed, Mr Havisham, like always. The package was indeed a shoebox. Inside were wads of cotton packing material, and beneath those were several thin objects wrapped in white fabric. I gingerly opened one on my desk. It was a plate of dull metal broken off from a larger piece. It had a slight curve to it. The metal was dull, dark grey, and it was heavier than it looked, so I guessed it was lead. There were characters inscribed on it, dense letters that I recognised from the English alphabet, but running in unbroken rows instead of separated into words. I realised it was Latin. I can't read Latin. The other plates were the pieces of a larger hole. They were all covered in the same dense writing. I shuffled them around my desk, assembling them like a jigsaw. The end result was a piece of thin lead about 14 inches long by 6 inches high, with a curve that suggested it had once been rolled up like a scroll. The Latin inscription was a little sketchy and haphazard, legible but far from neat, and it ended in a long string of numerals. The Romans were an exceptionally tedious people. They're like Victorians without the bad taste. They were only really good at two things, killing people and building arches. Their sole ambition was to rule the world, which is about as basic as you can get. They had great artists and writers who copied everything from the Greeks. One of my biggest objections to history is that you have to study the bloody Romans. One of the few things I ever found interesting about them is their vicious streak. They could be astonishingly nasty people. They watched human beings being murdered for fun in the Colosseums, which in any other culture would be the mark of extreme psychopathy, but for the Romans it was a day out. Another thing they liked to do was curse each other. They exhorted the gods or the spirits of the underworld to visit horrible suffering on people who'd stolen a lover, robbed them, sued them in court, or generally annoyed them. They would do the same thing when begging the gods to make someone fall in love with them. They'd inscribe the request on a sheet of lead and bury it, in the hope it will reach all the way down to Tartarus. That was what I had on my desk. A Roman curse tablet. For a while I wasn't sure what I was supposed to do with it. I couldn't read it. Then I realised I could take a rubbing of the tablet and I popped out again to pick up some sticks of charcoal from an art shop. I had a decent image of it transferred onto paper after a while, going carefully to avoid leaving impressions in the lead. Thankfully, the Carruthers Institute has plenty of contacts among the University of London. I asked Miss Arundel if we knew anyone who could read Latin, and she asked me if I wanted the whole list. I replied I only needed the one, and that a friend had sent me something written in Latin as a joke, and the next round would be on him if I could work out what it said. Think of it as a challenge to whoever I send it to. 
She gave me the email address of a professor at University College London who she said owed her a favour, so I scanned in my rubbing of the tablet and sent it off. That was two days ago, and I got the translation through today. Not much happened in the meantime except Miss Arundel has been probing again. She wants to know what I get up to when I'm not at work, any hobbies, that sort of thing. I told her I had my hands full looking after Mike's niece. I think she was a little taken aback by that. A pair of men looking after a child is still weird to a lot of people. She covered it well, though, with that tight, tweedy smile of hers. At least she probably won't ask many more questions. The translator thought it was an odd thing to be sending as a joke, but that the text was fairly simple to translate. It was in vulgar Latin, probably from the late 2nd to early 3rd century CE. The text was typical of a cursed tablet, a de fixio, although a bit more involved than most of them. Manius Publilius Matho sends this to all the spirits of the underworld, and to them I have given Imperator Caesar Lucius Septimius Severus Pertinax Augustus, if it be my place to do so. Torment and kill him by wasting away. For his folly, all the spirits of the fallen Second Parthican Legion at Pinata Castra must rend and castrate him. For his cruelty against the Caledonii, the Furies must wither his entrails, and before make him blind and dumb. And I give also the Caledonii who sent the son of Neptune against us. Torture and crush them. Bilitiri, Berebescu, Balabara. The last words were voces mystici. Nonsense words like abracadabra that represented the language of demons and made the whole thing that bit more magical. At the end was a string of numbers and letters the helpful professor pointed out indicated the date September the 24th, 213 CE. The main target of the curse was the Emperor Septimius Severus. I'm surprised we don't find other tablets with curses against the Emperors since they were almost all bloodthirsty despots with the death toll of a natural disaster. Septimius Severus was one of the less mad ones, but even he got to the top in a vicious civil war and spent his whole life sending thousands of men to kill each other in the furthest corners of the Empire. He came after Commodus, the one from Gladiator, so at the time he probably seemed like an okay emperor by comparison. He also died in 211 CE, which begs the question why someone would implore the gods to kill him in 213. It was where Septimius Severus died, at least in our timeline, that sent me down the rabbit hole. It was at Eboricum, present-day York, after he fell ill during a campaign in Scotland, aged 65. Septimius really liked conquering places, starting with Parthia in what's now Iran. Then he turned to the other side of the known world and started on Scotland. The Romans were ruling Britain but never controlled Scotland, partly because the coalition of tribes there, the Caledonians, were a vicious bunch of hairy savages and partly because there wasn't anything in Scotland the Romans wanted. Still... Septimius Severus didn't like that little corner of the map not being Rome-coloured, so he marched 50,000 men past Hadrian's Wall to finish the job. I tried to imagine what it was like for a soldier who'd fought in Parthia to suddenly find himself in Scotland. The absolute edge of the known world, beyond which was nothing but the endless river the Romans called Ocean. Maybe it was the same feeling an astronaut gets looking out into space and seeing absolutely nothing there, forever. Or maybe they just moaned about the weather. Roman historians aren't reliable. They all have an agenda, either to glorify Rome or to make a particular emperor look good or bad, depending on who was in charge at the time of writing. 
From the sources that survive, assuming they're broadly true, the Caledonians weren't too keen on having a fair fight. They mounted ambushes and guerrilla attacks on the Romans, then legged it back into the Scottish wilderness. Septimius Severus was so angered by the Caledonians not fighting a war properly, he resorted to genocide. There's a speech attributed to him telling his soldiers to kill everyone they found, even the unborn in their mother's wombs. A punishment against the whole of the Caledonian tribes for the crime of not lining up in a field to die like Rome wanted. Then Septimius Severus fell ill and died. His sons took over and realised the whole mess was needless bloodshed even by Roman standards, so they went back to Hadrian's Wall and the Romans never went north of it again. Except in the Caledonia our Manius Publilius Matho knew, Septimius Severus didn't get ill. He didn't die. He kept going. The Pinata Castra, he mentioned, is the chief settlement of one of the Caledonian tribes. It might be in Moray, up the coast from where Aberdeen is now, and certainly it was far further into Scotland than the Romans ever got in our timeline. And judging by the curses Matho threw at the Emperor for leading them there, Septimius Severus suffered a bad enough defeat to send the souls of the Second Parthican Legion to the underworld. What happened to the 50,000 men the Emperor led into Caledonia? There were probably three legions of Roman citizen soldiers, plus two to three times their number in foreign auxiliaries. The legion were well-armed and well-trained, and they didn't tend to run. What did the Caledonians do that could inflict a catastrophe on an army that size? But Matho's curses weren't just aimed at the emperor, whose lust to conquer and cruelty against the locals had led the Roman army into a defeat at Pinata Castra. The Caledonians were supposed to suffer too, for what they did to the second Parthican legion and maybe the rest of Septimius's men. They'd sent the son of Neptune against the Romans, and for that, they deserved to be tortured and crushed for eternity. What the hell was the son of Neptune? A proper Roman scholar might be able to dig up the history of the second Parthican legion and Septimius Severus's campaigns and home in more accurately on what must have happened. Maybe Manius Publilius Matho is out there in the historical record somewhere. That proper scholar, unfortunately, is not me. All the gaps are filled in by what my brain cooks up. It's such a familiar feeling, it's not surprising anymore, but that doesn't make it any more pleasant. Some part of me, buried deep in my head, wants to conjure up new horrors wherever there's a gap in the history for them to fit. I started to wrap the first piece of the tablet back up. It could live on in its shoebox, and with luck, join the vast majority of the Institute's artefacts in never being looked at again. As I did so, I felt something on the other side of the piece. It was engraved on both sides. I thought I'd have to do the whole thing again. Make a rubbing like a kid in a churchyard and send it to get translated, probably by a different person so they didn't start wondering what the hell was going on beneath the Carruthers Institute. But it had to be done. I turned the piece over. For a moment I was glad it wasn't more writing. It looked like part of a picture. I assembled it again like a jigsaw. I wasn't glad anymore. Manius Publilius Matho wasn't much of an artist. I couldn't really make out what he had drawn. I had an impression of buildings on a shoreline. Pinata Castra, maybe, sitting on the edge of the North Sea, beyond which there was no more world. And something rising over it, arching up over the land. Limbs. Eyes. Tentacles. I didn't take a rubbing of that. 
The cursed tablet of Manius Publilius Matho is in its box in the deepest, most forgettable corner of the basement with all the other artefacts from the project. Maybe I wasn't the first to try to forget what it revealed. Hadrian might have had a reason to build his wall, because there was something in Caledonia even a Roman didn't want to try to conquer. Something in another timeline that Septimius Severus walked right into, and that plunged the Second Parthican Legion straight to the underworld. Maybe it's still there. Miss Arundel asked me if there was something bothering me. The answer is yes. There are lots of things bothering me. They're staring at me from their shelves and I can feel them sitting there even when I can't see them. But she doesn't need to feel that as well. My old uni tutor taught us that history is about remembering the past. I wonder now if I would have been better off studying how to forget. Out of Place was created by Ben Counter. Andrew Moss is played by Ben Counter. Our music is created by the incredible Tom Rory Parsons. And I'm your producer and sound designer, Pacific S. Obadiah. This is a Midnight Disease production. For more information, visit midnightdisease.net. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.